Hello and welcome to Embracing Crazy. I'm Taro Corrin. Well, today on the podcast, I have a very great friend of mine, Jeffrey Van Dyke. Jeffrey and I met around four years ago at the Association of Transformational Leaders. We were both new members at the time. And we met in a room in the middle of playing a game, a game that challenged us to give and receive. Uh, we had yet to meet, of course. And I was standing in this room. We were being led by some other leaders at the time to to split up uh, into two groups. One was half the room was going to walk into another place with their eyes closed, or no, with their eyes open, and find someone to hug. The other half of the room was to have their eyes closed and their arms open, and with their eyes staying shut, uh, they would receive the hug that came toward them. Jeffrey chose to hug me, although we'd never met. Um, He was guided, I remember, to uh, just come toward me, and uh, we had what I believe was about a 10-minute hug. Uh, For some of us, that sounds very uncomfortable and unlikely to do that with someone you've never met. However, in that moment of embrace, we became some of the best of friends. Uh, We've both never forgotten that hug, and uh, I wanted to share that story as we begin today, that we've always enjoyed hugging each other ever since, and it created this pathway to the friendship that we have on a you know, as friends here and on a soul level, that Jeffrey and I are really great friends. Jeffrey Van Dyke, uh, in his world, in his professional life, he is an international speaker, a guide, a strategist, and really a profound leader in guiding people toward their greatest calling in this life. Maybe they've done something else in their world, and now they know that there's something greater for them to tap into their purpose to leave a mark like only they could in their work in the world. Jeffrey Van Dyke guided Isaac and I to dive deeper into our work along the songwriter's journey, our company now, Your Big Voice. He was instrumental in giving us the space to dive into the areas of who we were through what we'd been through, the breakdowns and the wounding that we'd experienced as two brothers separately and together. And that by diving into those parts of us, uh, we could then find the gift in the service we were for others. He does this tribal marketing work today um, with people from all around the world. And he is a, a unique individual and incredible mentor, guide, and coach. Today, Jeffrey and I really dive into the heart of what Jeffrey has lived and how it gave birth to the work he does today. Uh, The Courageous Messenger, his work in the world, uh, is one that guides people toward their work through what they've been through in their life. Jeffrey and I talk in depth uh, about his childhood and about the pressures of religion for him growing up and how he felt outcast given his sexuality and the pressures to fit in. Uh, He was obviously wounded and had experiences around feeling other. Uh, And at a time in his young life, how music for him became this welcome respite, uh, a place of refuge, and gave him a new sense of belonging amidst the chaos, of feeling like he didn't belong. We also go into a great conversation about how a series of mentors and destined moments that he experienced led him to begin to give up the wars, the internal battles and dialogues within him uh, and move into his work and into his courageous message, one that would guide him to do the work he does today. We jam in what it means to embrace our wounds and allow them to give birth to the gifts in our lives that we are really here in service of others when we come through those parts of us uh, and embrace those parts that have been deemed not okay can open the doorway to our greatest work in our lives. So without further delay, I bring you Jeffrey Van Dyke. Jeffrey Van Dyke, welcome to Embracing Crazy. Such a pleasure to have you. Glad to be here, my friend. We've been friends now for, I've actually lost count of the years, maybe, is it four? Something like that. Something like that. 
And uh, it's been nothing but uh, a privilege to call you a dear friend of mine and to have been mentored and coached by you and to also have been the same for you in different yeah. ways, which we can get into. Uh, I know so much of your work in your life has centered around something that is so near and dear to my heart now, which is what you've been through, what trauma found you in your life, the wounding that it left in its wake. That wounding creates a space for as you can come through that, as that heals, that those very things you've been through become the gifts. And, you know, today I want to jam in that. Uh, Before we do, every great leader, every great mentor, every great guide, which you are, incredible guide, uh, has a story just the same, that <laughs> we've each walked these paths and here, and you have such a beautiful one. So I want to go back to the beginning You know, take us back to Jeffrey Van Dyke as a young boy. Um, what was the life like for you growing up? <laughs> um, you know, so I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in uh, a sea of Dutch people. Uh, my last name is Van Dyke. You know, neighbors and friends are the Van Kuykens and the Vandermeers and the Dykstras. And uh, we had license plate holders that said, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. Um, and uh, these were religious immigrants from the Netherlands who came here to be more religiously puritanical. Uh, so these were followers of John Kelvin. Um, a side note, I went to the Netherlands when I was 14, and I was like, oh my God, these people are awesome. What happened to the ones I grew up with? <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized, oh, these were the people who left the cool people. Um, you know, uh, so I grew up in a very religious household. We went to church twice on Sunday, every Wednesday. I went to church school, uh, like not public school, parochial school. Um, but really the imprint for me, uh, was when my parents left the Christian Reformed Church, which is kind of a, you know, it's a Protestant church, uh, Protestant denomination. And we became like evangelical holy rollers. Uh, so we went to this church called People's Church, uh, this non-denominational um, you know, people got slain in the spirit, speaking in the tongues, dancing in aisles. Um, and wow. then uh, we went from there to an Assemblies of God church, a mega church, like 5,000 members. Um, and every single Sunday, every service, there was an altar call, which went something like, you know, if you don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you leave this building today and you hit my car that you're going to heaven, I just want you to raise your hand right now. Just raise your hand right now. Nobody's looking, uh, you know, and they did these step ups. Right. And I'm like, wow, now that I understand marketing, like what great marketing, nobody's, nobody's looking, just raise your hand. That's all you have to do. And then they would praise you, you know, uh, you know, you know, cur- you know, such a courageous act to raise your hand. Now just stand up, just right where you are. Nobody's looking. Right. And then the third one was now come on down to the altar and get saved. Hmm. Um, And that rhetoric, every single service, if you don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're going to heaven if you get hit by a car, right, you need to get saved. Hmm. Uh, I never knew beyond a shadow of a doubt. And they talked about this, you know, God in a sky that you had to have a personal relationship with that I I did not know how to do that. Um, And... uh, it's also very judgmental. Uh, you know, there's a right way to be and a right way to live. And the people they judged most were people called backsliders, hmm. uh, which are people that got saved and then slid back into their earthly ways. Right. right? Um, and that's kind of the, uh, oh gosh, I got to share this. So there was this crazy movie they showed us in elementary school. Of course, this is the church elementary school. And it was about the end times. And for those that don't know the whole like Christian right end times thing, it's at some point Jesus is going to come back and save all his followers and everybody else is going to be left behind. Huh. But, uh, which is why you need to be sure that you're saved. So you're ready. 
right? Whenever that, that happens, got to be ready. Uh, but if you have backslid and like, oops, I missed the window, um, there is this seven years of trial and tribulation where you can kind of prove like, oops, I forgot, but I really do mean it. And that's where after this rapture happens, you have to uh, not take the sign of the beast, 666. So they showed us this movie where uh, the sign of the beast, 666, is a barcode that gets implanted in your wrist um, and it, you need it for uh, commerce, to buy groceries, to buy anything. That's the only form of commerce is this embedded uh, barcode. Uh, and there's this family that didn't take the sign of the beast and they're dumpster diving for food because they don't have a way to get it. And then the, basically the, the American Gestapo uh, finds them and chases them with dogs, uh, you know, like, like, like dogs that police have. Uh, and they like try to like run, you know, dive into this like cave in the woods they're staying in and hide. And, so that's, you know, that's, that's, uh, and I, you know, every, I was like, I, I didn't know. Every time there was a, um, a really red sky, there is this thing in the Bible when the sky turns to blood, right? That's the end times came when there was a really red sky. I was like, oh, is that it? Hmm. And I would look in the backyards. We all had rider lawnmowers, these big uh, lawns, right? Is there any rider lawnmowers? There's nobody on them. Are there any, and I'd go to the front of the house, looking at the street. Are there any cars with like no driver in them uh, to see if I'd been left behind? Yeah. Um, so there was a, like, so for me, one of the big wounds is about belonging and being outcast, right? Yeah. It's like, I can't find my way in, mm -hmm. even though I'm told that I have to. Um, and then yeah. when I was, uh, summer, I turned 13. Um, I was on the beach with my big sister, Kim. Uh, we had a cottage out by Lake Michigan and um in holland michigan right um <laughs> where they literally have uh windmills yeah. um and uh my sister was three years older she was 16 i was 13 and i'll never forget laying out uh on our blankets and these three girls came up it was me and my sister and her her friend darcy and she had all these really pretty friends right so they walk up in their bikinis and their long blonde hair and their boyfriends are with them and I'm laying there, I'm looking up, and I look to the right, and there's the girls in their bikinis. I look to the left, and there's these guys in their board shorts and their abs. And I'm very interested. <laughs> and I look back to the girls, and then I look back to the guys, and it hits me. Like, oh, fuck. Mm. You know, looking at the wrong thing. Yeah. And that was like nail in the coffin. You're damned. You're fucked. You're never getting to heaven. There's nothing you can do. Huh. And I fought for, you know, the better part of the next decade. Every night, every day, like, God, make me straight. Take mm -hmm. it away. Uh and <laughs> lo and behold, it didn't work, um, you know, uh, but that, that, that like ultimate outcast of like yeah. this divine being God, let alone, you know, uh, folks in the Midwest in the eighties with gay people, right. Yes. And what you saw in the media during the AIDS crisis and the gay plague. And like, that was all happening during my coming of age um gay you know to be gay equals uh to be reviled yeah but also it's a death sentence um but then add the god piece of like there there's 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 no fucking way you're getting to heaven no right? you're screwed now mm -hmm. so that to me like as like foundational story for this imprint around belonging yeah. Uh, and longing to connect, but always feeling on the outside, which thank God I don't feel anymore. Huh. Whew, that's been a journey. It's amazing. <laughs>
you know, oh. but that's, that, that's kind of from whence I come. <laughs> that's what a, what a root, you know, you brought up so many amazing things and, you know, behind religion and, you know, I've obviously total respect for all different denominations. And in your case, this non-denominational organization, this gathering, right, of belief in God, um, which, you know, for me, in its, in, its, in its pure way, obviously, I mean, I know you're a man of source in your life, and we'll get into that. Yeah. But what we're really touching behaviorally here is the setup of cult psychology upon a young, in, easily influenced child. Yeah. And, you know, I was influenced without that. I had hippie parents. And as I stepped into a world that became unstable for me, I didn't even need a church to tell me that. My own mind was enough. I looked right. to the world and went, it's not okay to be having these terrible feelings and thoughts. I have to control my world. It's another to be, um, in, at least in the cult psychological perspective, um, exposed to that kind of pressure mm. to fit in or else. You know, and mm -hmm. I think it's such a such an amazing conversation in and of itself, you know, whether it's Scientology or Christianity, um, you know, any, any religion dependent on, but, but beyond the belief, any system, any system that gets created. Yeah. And in so many ways, which we can jump into if it comes back up, it's, it's the system around the thing that can be distorted and really at the core of behavior. If a wound goes left fested, you know, stays fested. It's the behaviors and the mechanisms that grow around that that create the interpretations, distortions, and ultimately delusions of behavior in someone's life. So yeah. it's such a fascinating take. And then on top of all of that pressure, you were naturally a young boy connecting to that he was gay. And yeah. talk about the ultimate um, reckoning. Talk about the ultimate sin in that moment. Um, from, from my upbringing, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So from that place, right as a teenager, like what was your, you were faced with such a trauma of being so outcast, so alone in that moment. What, as you hit puberty and as you stepped into this, what was your reaction? How did you act? Like what, what occurred then? Well, so to me, uh, homosexuality or sexuality in general as a othering, um, is a kind of unique one because a lot of othering is obvious. A lot of othering is skin color, right? Gender, uh, weight, height, right? Obvious things that other people can see and you can't hide. Right. Sexuality is a funky one because you can do a whole lot of things to, you know, that's the reason we call it keeping it in the closet. Right. Um, and that is its own special, interesting journey because you're having, you know, the weirdest thing about that moment on the beach was my life got turned inside out in a moment mm -hmm. that nobody else knew. Yeah. Right. Sitting right next to me and one side is Darcy and the other side is my sister. And they were just at the beach. Right. It was just another, the, day at the beach with their friends. So the, the kind of surreal part of it was how alone I was in that journey. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think it's a, it is a different, it's a distinct different journey for folks that uh, wear it physically. Um, and you can't hide it. That's a, that's a, that's another thing, but it's a different thing. So for me, I, became a showman right like i'm dirty and rotten and disgusting and i can't allow you to see it so hello my baby hello my darling hello my doll. right like i i learned to put on a show my first show was uh being a punk rock middle schooler right right uh, I shaved uh, my head except for a square on top that hung down to my shoulders. I wore all black, right? I got my first pair of Doc Martens in 1987 when you can only buy them in like London and New York and right and uh, 
saving grace in my life, my family moved to Vienna, Austria for a half year when I was 14. Um, and I, I got my Dark Martins when we went through London on the way home. Nice. Um, right. But like, so that was my first one is like, just fuck you and I'll prove you. And I will show that I'm different in a way that I feel strong in versus weak. Right. right. And so like, I'll become a badass MF and I also, so I'm six foot two, right? So I was six foot two by the time I was in middle school. I grew a foot the year before entering middle school. So all these little shrimps, they all called me fairy. That was my name in middle school. Hey fairy, what's up fairy? Uh, but they would never say it directly to my face. They would do it 20, 30 feet away. Um, but I would never forget. And I don't care if it was two, three, four, five days later, if we passed in the hall, you got socked in the gut. I got 47 detentions in seventh grade. Um, fortunately, we moved to Vienna the next year. And um, all my friends were from the American school in Vienna. And so these were ambassadors kids and worldly kids. Um, and they were cool. <laughs> Uh, and I grew up on my sister's schedule, three years older. So all my friends were 16, 17, yeah. uh, and I'm tall at this point. So I, I fit in, uh, and it just like, life wasn't hard there. Yeah. It was you like know? a little respite, like a little bit of welcomed belonging. It was the like, oh, there's a different, like this window into, it could be a different way. Not where you live necessarily, but it can be a different way. Hmm. And like, God bless my parents. They saw that. And uh, when we went back to Grand Rapids, uh, we lived in the suburbs and I went to this private parochial school in the suburbs. But the one in the city uh, had changed to uh, start, instead of 10 through 12, it was nine through 12. And so after another half a year at the school I hated, they're like, you need to, you need to go there. And um, they worked hard to, navigate commuting and whatnot for me. Um, and there, uh, I found my place, you know, and started to thrive. Um, oh, okay. I gotta tell you, um, this is where music comes in. Perfect. Uh, so I'm at this school and, um, uh, we left the <clears throat> Holy Rollers. Uh, we left that and went back to Christian Reformed when I was in seventh grade. Um, and this, the church we went to there was in the city. So all my friends went to the school in the city. Um, and uh, 10th grade, so this school uh, had a performing arts requirement. And they're like, well, you, you aren't doing anything yet, so you better join choir. Okay, so they throw me in choir. And I was one of these kids that was always humming growing up. Um, I never sang in a choir or anything. I don't even think we had choirs. We had only congregational singing. Yeah. Um, so I didn't learn to sing growing up, but I was humming. I was always making up songs and, uh, and I loved choir my first, uh, first six, first, first semester. By the second semester, I hated that choir because the guy had no classroom management skills. Um, but we had a premier choir that you could audition to uh, for junior and senior year, which I did and got into. And Don Scott, God bless his soul, um, was one of the most nurturing, wise, sweet men I've ever known. You know, those mentors that come across your your world, like, yeah. it just has a saving grace. Yeah. Um, and uh, we made music. Yeah. You know, we routinely won competitions and whatnot, but it was never about the win. It was always, did we make music? <laughs> uh, and because of that, we often won, you know? Um, and he just got it. <laughs> I would often pace in the back of the choir room and uh, just needed to move. And um, I remember one day another kid got up and was walking around and he's like, hey, sit down. He's like, uh, but you let Jeffrey walk around. Yeah, he needs to. You don't sit down. Oh, wow. Just knew. Oh, I need to. My body needs to move. And I never, you know, I'm not causing a ruckus by moving. I just, 
like one of those kind of people, you know? Amazing. And uh, that, that opened a world for me. That, that was. It's amazing. A real teacher, yeah. right? A real teacher. Yeah. Someone who's actually listening. Yeah. That's amazing. And so as music opened for you, as you found um, belonging and, and, and direction, um, dare I say acceptance, how was your acceptance internally? How, what was occurring for you, you know, on a behavioral level? What, was the, what were the thoughts and feelings and, and what, you know, what was that like in this moment inside you? So this was 14 juniors and 14 seniors, 28 kids. Um, and they were math nerds and sports jocks and uh, arty folk and, right, a huge mix. Um, but we toured all the time. So we bonded and I had this friend group across the fabric of this school. Right. Uh, which was wild, you know. Um, when you say what happened behavioral, the first thought that came to my mind was, oh, instead of getting D's and C's, it started getting A's and B's. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's a plug for uh, music education in schools. Yeah. Uh, you know, I found belonging and I stopped acting out so much. Yeah. Um, now, I wouldn't say that I you know, felt deeply whole, that took a whole lot longer. Um, but at least I felt like there was a place for me. Right. Uh, and more so, you know, what music gave me was a place. I've never thought of it this way. Gave me a place to feel my own soul. Mm. You know, <laughs> which I was so disconnected from, uh, from all the internal judgment. Um, when we made music, it wasn't related to whatever judgments I had in myself about being disgusting or broken or wrong or any of that, right? It was presence. Music was the first place I really experienced presence. Huh. That's so beautiful. Yeah, it's such a container. I really feel that. And, you know, internal judgment, you know, that was clearly adopted from a time where you had been so clearly shown what is a way to belong and what is and what is the other right and in your mm. case you know in a traumatic sense it ticked all the boxes of i'm fucked yeah and then you know so often we adopt that internal you know dialogue of others or systems or organizations family community around us they become voices against us within us and then, you know, it comes along a way to be present and accept yourself, right? And and for you to be I don't magical. know that I accepted myself. It was a way to be present and step out of, at least for moments, hmm. sometimes whole hours, or at least a song, to step out of the internal judgment. Yeah. It, it was stepping into just a different frequency, a different field where that stuff just didn't live. Now, I mean, it's not like I was conscious of this right no, at the time. Not. And it's also not like every single waking moment, my thoughts were, I'm broken and wrong and disgusting, but it was running in the background, exactly. you know? Yeah. Um, so that's, that to me was what it was, is it was transcendent. It, it brought me out of the frequency where those beliefs were housed. Yeah. And you're so well said, because not everyone with their, you know, mental relationship, emotional diseases, that not everyone is clinical in any way. And yet so many of us are affected in the background. You know, like I would say our, most of us aren't clinical. Exactly. Most right. aren't. And yet, you know, at least in my belief, you know, it's not a measurement of it's just a, a measurement of severity and duration That's that it. makes someone clinical. So if and you back expression. up Exactly, and how it expresses, and how much it takes of your day, how much dysfunction has it is it causing in your life? So, you know, one of the things that I talk about uh, in my work today is that our response to our wound-driven beliefs about ourselves are a mixture of inflation and deflation. Hmm. Right. So, inflation is I'm going to prove that belief to be wrong. Right. 
if I internally believe I'm a failure, I'm going to fight, fight, fight like hell to be a success, right? If I don't belong, gosh, I'm going to make sure everybody loves me, right? Yeah. That's That was my game. Um, you know, whatever it is, you fight the opposite with the fantasy, right? And this is the ultimate fantasy of the ego. The fantasy being there's some measure of doing it externally that will disprove the belief you hold internally. Totally. Right? So if I say I'm unlovable, oh, will you love me? How about you? How about you? And if somebody loves you enough, oh gosh, they're filling that void. They're giving you the drug until they fail. Then we got to divorce them or break up with them or move on and find the next one that'll do it, right? Because we're outsourcing our internal need. Yeah. And that's the inflation. The deflation is when we fall, you know, head head first into the mud of it. Oh, I'm such a failure. I'm so worthless. I'm so unwanted, right? So, mm. and we all vacillate. We go back and forth between them, right? Absolutely. A lot of folks that we call successful uh, are highly you know, in an inflated relationship to their wounds. Some are resolved around their wounds, mm-hmm. um, you know, but there's there's a lot of achievement in this world driven by the inflated fantasy that there's some amount of doing out there that will disprove these deep, hidden, core beliefs we have about ourselves. We're going to come back to that because, like, how magnificent is that? It's so, so deeply true and timely and I, I, before we move on I want to just take that moment to as you came into your adult years how did this work you do today the courageous messenger um, mentoring and guiding people through their wounds and, and such sim- similarity to to me or and our our work around music to lead back toward the places that have been unresolved and to re-embrace them, to reorient yourself and allow the gift to, to really grow from that space. How on earth did you come to this work you do today? Um, divine guidance. <laughs> um, so yeah. just a couple pieces I'll share. When I was 23, I got put on a path. Uh, I was out of college. I had got trained as a in vocal performance and music ed. I'd done my student teaching, was doing substitute teaching and realizing I, I don't, being a full-time teacher isn't it. So, oh crap, now I don't know what to do, right? I'm waiting tables, I'm doing cabaret, I'm substitute teaching. Yeah. So I lived in this house with three other women and uh, one day, one of them came home and said, hey, I got this book for you, Half Price at the University Bookstore. It just made me think you might like it. Here. Never given me a book before or since. Right? <laughs> just here's a book. And I pick it up and it says, Sex, Death, Enlightenment, a memoir by Mark Matusik. And, uh, and I read it voraciously. Uh, and here's this gay guy who... Uh, was head editor at Interview Magazine when Warhol was there, um, got disillusioned with the whole New York Warhol scene, um, interviewed a guy from India, they fell in love, goes to India, studies in ashrams with spiritual teachers, you know, in the Himalayas, ends up in Germany at Mother Mira's ashram for an extended period of time. And a lot of it's about his uh, nonverbal communication with Mother Mira, this avatar, right? Um, This enlightened being. And uh, I'm sitting there, I'm reading about it. I'm in the backyard and I finish it. I'm in the hammock in the summer. And I just sit there and I think about my own life because I have pretty much blacked out those elementary years in that school. I have a few memories, but very, very few. Um, And I've always been like, oh, is that really wrong? (laughs) Right? Uh, um, And I'm like, I read this book and I'm like, oh, maybe I should see some spiritual person. Right. I walk indoors and there's a voice message waiting for me. uh, me, And it's uh, a buddy of mine. He says, hey, um, 
I want to invite you to this thing, this salon I'm going to do next weekend in my studio. I'm only inviting eight people, but we have this spiritual teacher. She's a channeler and medium. Wow. Um, and I really felt guided to invite you. Would you like to come? Wow. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> I mean, I was uh, oh, like, God damn it. Like, okay. I'm aware that when you get given the book and then read the book and then think about it and you walk in and there's literally a voice message invitation waiting for you. My gosh. I, I mean, I'm not that thick. Okay. <laughs> I, right. Um, and it was on the next Saturday and I was waiting tables. And for me, like a Saturday night was like a $400 oh, yeah. night when big I'm 23. Deal. So that's a big deal. Right. Big but deal. I'm like, I, I know better. I gotta go. Um, but I also was like, this is weird. I don't know what to think about this. This is freaky. Yeah. Um, Right. Uh, I talked to my friend Henry, who has all these great sayings from his grandmother, Jewish woman from the Bronx. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just do what my grandmother used to always say eat the fish and spit out the bones. Take what works for you and leave the rest. <laughs> it's right? I'm like, okay, I can do this. So I show up and she reads a few people before me, and they're 15 minute readings. Uh, and both are really unique. I know these people. They're not generic. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then she comes over to me and she first sings out of her mouth. Never forget this. I see you singing in the rain. I see you dancing like Fred Astaire. Hmm. At the time I was doing performance art and cabaret and whatnot. I'm like, okay, have my attention. Then she says, uh, there's a gentleman on your father's side that's died recently. Uh, yes. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Right. I'm like, yes, yeah, my grandpa. All right. Well, he's here and he wants to talk to you. Now my grandfather spoke Dutch as well as English, but spoke Dutch first. And so, um, his sentence structure was sometimes odd. Like, you know, you might put the verb at the end, like I will to the store go kind of thing. Right. Right. He, he had a strange sentence structure. Um, and she starts talking to me in his sentence structure. Wow. And he's just telling me, I'm here for you. I love you. Anything you need, just ask me. And I just feel what he's saying is, I know you're gay. And now that I've crossed over, it's fine. And I love you. And I'm here. Wow. Right. So then for the first time that night, she conks out and this other being speaks through her. Right. And this hadn't happened yet this night. And this Irish guy comes through with an Irish brogue. And uh, and he says, you know, you're a bright light. People flock to you like moths to a flame. Be sure they don't just eat off your light, but connect them to theirs. Um, and he said, the same thing is true on the etheric plane. Uh, you've got all these guides around you. And he goes, they're at the front of you and at the back of you and at the sides of you. It's like a football team backing you up. Right? And... Uh, God, it's so true. <laughs> my experience of you. <laughs> yeah. And just then he said, uh, he said, anytime you feel a chill at the base of your skull, which I since have learned it, spiritual people call the mouth of God, right? That soft spot. When you feel a chill there, that's your guides. And just then I felt a chill. And my very first thought was holy psychosomatic. Right. Woo! And uh, then this team rushed me through that portal. I mean, I felt this energy pulsating through my body, uh, almost like blood when you go on a really vigorous run and you can feel it pump, 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 but mm. I could tell it wasn't in my veins. And it was so overwhelming, I just start bawling. I collapse on this lady's shoulders. She smells like my grandfather and my what? 15 minutes are up. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Welcome to your initiation. Oh, wow. Right. Okay. So uh, she's still my spiritual teacher to this day. I've been working with her, uh, you know, uh, all these years. Um, uh, one of the most holy, down to earth, loving uh, women I know, uh, people I know. Um, and I'd booked an hour long the next day because I'm like, all right, if I'm already, you know, losing my $400 night. And I know I'm meant to be there. I might as well. Let's go right, deeper. All in. <laughs> the uh, team's with me I, now. That's kind of how I do things, right? So <laughs> that started it. Um, and a few years after that, uh, 
I remember being at home on my uh, big gateway computer, those big long CRT monitors on my dining room table, journaling, and this voice started showing up on the Word document that wasn't my own. Uh, and it was smarter than me. It was wiser than I am. It was counseling me. And so I started to kind of ask it questions and get answers back. Hmm. Uh, and a few years after that, I picked up Conversations with God, Neil Donald Walsh's book. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's what I do, right? Oh, I didn't know it was a thing. Um, so that's kind of started my spiritual journey of really connecting with my guidance, uh, using guidance in my daily life, uh, really having a lot of healing uh, with, you know, spiritual messages coming through about who I actually am, yeah, uh, not who I thought I was. Um, Amazing. So that's, that kind of put me on that path. Uh, I eventually moved to San Francisco. I worked in the tech industry. I was at Microsoft. Um, went on a fateful date when I realized I wasn't meant to, to be doing that anymore with a guy that used a coach um, to start his restaurant. And I was fascinated. And I started telling all my friends, I'm going to stay with this guy. He's this thing called a coach. And they were like, you should do that, Jeffrey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, next person. I'm going to stay with this guy. He's this thing called a coach. You should do that, Jeffrey. After maybe a dozen of these, it was like, oh, maybe I should do that. <laughs> um, so uh, got trained as a coach. And uh, fortunately for me, a year or so in, I met this guy, Tim Kelly, who became a uh, my next real big mentor. This is like an interview of <laughs> like of all my mentors. Meeting the um, mentors, yeah. Tim, Tim took me under his wings. Um, he taught life purpose work. And a really interesting way into life purpose that I haven't seen replicated in anybody else's system, which basically said, hey, if your logical mind is asking why I'm here, why would you go to your logical mind for the answer? By definition, it doesn't have it. Mm -hmm. Right. Most, most purpose systems say, oh, if you know, what was, you know, when were you most alive? Tell me about a peak moment. You know, what was going on then? Or if you had a year left to live, what would you do and why? And they all use memory and imagination to try to kind of discern, oh, your purpose is to be loving, right? Or whatever. <laughs> you end up with fairly generic purpose information. Tim said, well, what if there was a source of wisdom outside of your logical mind that could know your purpose and tell it to you under the right conditions. Mm. Right. Um, and essentially one of the primary tools he teaches is how to journal back and forth with guidance around specific questions of purpose. Now I had been doing this kind of journaling since I was in my mid twenties. Yeah. I'm in my mid thirties at this point. Right. Mm -hmm. But the thing that rocked my world was I learned about different parts of the psyche. You know, you're in a critic, you're in a skeptic, you're in a judge, you're in a perfectionist, et cetera, et cetera. And using the same back and forth, you know, Romeo colon, Romeo's lines, Juliet colon, Juliet's lines, back and forth. Jeffrey, hi, can I talk with my critic? Critic colon, yeah, I'm here, what do you want? Jeffrey colon, all right, well, um, you seem like a pretty harsh voice. What's going on? Critic cone. Well, you've got to be perfect and you slip up all the time and I'm here to keep you on the straight and narrow. Right. And so start to dialogue with them, but ultimately start to learn what these different parts of your psyche are trying to get for you. They all have a positive intent. They all have a noble goal. I did not know this before I met Tim. Uh, I was at war with myself, me against me, the parts I liked, against the parts I didn't like, right? Yeah. And uh, I learned this tool of starting to build relationship with these parts of my psyche and learn from them and heal and kind of actually get on the same page. So now my whole system is moving forward in one direction. Instead of, <laughs> I'm trying to go forward now, stay back, right? Um, it blew my mind. That's amazing. Well, you bring up such a beautiful moment here because we are taught either consciously or unconsciously 
throughout our lives, you know, cross culture, you know, cross the whole globe in different ways, that when there's something uncomfortable in us or there's something at war within us, that to fix war we must, something must be removed. Wage war. Exactly. Yeah, right. to fix war we must wage war. Or, and also the back backstyle of waging war is to something's wrong I've got to fix that remove that cut that out and whilst obviously there's certain areas of life where cutting something out works uh, time and time again on a mental emotional spectrum of behavior it doesn't yep. you know maybe every now and again but it generally doesn't and so even when I'm not talking to someone who's experienced OCD in this case which has its own subset of ways of dealing when you look at the general, you know, everyone who's listening, the general population who suffers from depression, anxiety in different ways, and you look at those wars within yourself, that just what you just said, opening up dialogue, and I want you to explain a little bit about maybe one yeah, thing yeah. someone could try here, to open up dialogue between the parts that you've deemed not okay, and to actually create a space for those parts to be heard, yeah. seen, Maybe not listened to and their exact action plan um, put into place in your life, but a space to be actually integrated. So in so many ways, what you're describing is a way of embracing parts that have been, you know, you've been trying to get rid of. Exactly. Yeah. Embracing yeah. crazy. Yeah. What would you, what's your advice for someone in this okay. little place? I mean, so first let me just add one thing in addition to like what we do globally around war and whatnot. Also around personal development, yeah. right? I worked my tail off. I did so many damn workshops, mm -hmm. uh, read so many books, and it was all with the aim of fixing myself. Exactly. And I don't know that I ever said this out loud back then, but I kind of had this imagination like someday I will be fully baked and ready to serve, right? Or like the present will be wrapped and the bow will be on top. Yes. And then I can bring it to the world. Right. And so I'm like working, 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 working to try to shave off all the edges. Um, and that's the war. That's the war, brother. Right. Uh, so. And, and, and the difference, I would say, also around like, you know, behavioral change, behavioral change is different than motivational change. Uh, behavior, yeah, there are times when you can start to change some behaviors and it works. A lot of times, not so much. But parts, these different parts of our psyche is where we're motivated to do things and why we're motivated to do them. Absolutely. You know, so look, here's how it here's how it gets cooked. When we're kids, uh, wounding experiences only require two ingredients. An experience has to be painful and confusing. Hmm. Something's just painful. It just hurts. It just hurts. If something's confusing, but not painful, it's just weird. Oh, that's funny. Right. But if something is painful and confusing, it creates a vacuum of meaning that we have to fill with these words. Why is this happening? And even more, why is this happening to me? That's the foundation of wounding these vacuums of meaning around painful, confusing experiences. It's brilliant. Right? And then because we're three years old, five years old, seven years old, we can't bite the hand that feeds us, blaming mom and dad. That's not uh, from an evolutionary standpoint, not smart. So what do we do? We blame us, right? Oh, this must be happening because I'm fill in the blank. Cause I'm worthless. Cause I'm unwanted. Cause I'm, uh, uh, you know, fill in the blank. Um, and the funny thing is some of these are overt, uh, big ass experiences, right? Uh, I mean, God, I've had clients with some horrendous shit happen in their life. Absolutely. But a lot of them are much less obvious. You know, you work, you know, you're, 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 you're working to get a gold star in your paper or to get all A's that semester or whatever. And you get your report card and you did it. And you are 
over the moon. You can't wait to get home and share with mom and dad because they've been really working with you, right? You walk in, mom, dad, guess what? Blah, blah, blah. That's great, honey. Go to your room. Go to your room. What you don't know, mom and dad are sitting at the dining room table talking about getting a divorce. All you know is they've worked with you for months to achieve this. You did. You thought you would get praised and you got sent to your room. Hmm. Confusing and painful. Yeah. Right. So the reason I add that is because it, it doesn't have to be, you know, um, getting raped, uh, having your dad hit you, uh, right? Watching your sibling get hit by a car and die. Like it doesn't have to be that overt. It also can be chronic, growing up with a perfectionist mother that you could never please. So guess how we deal with that? We, and this goes back to the parts conversation, we develop a carbon copy of mom in our own psyche especially mom's perfectionist. Because if we can try to perfect ourselves before we present ourselves to mom, then hopefully she won't uh, 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 criticize us and instead we'll get her love. Yeah, Sounds like a great idea, right? So we develop our own inner perfectionist that judges and criticizes us and tries to you know, and that's where, you know, maybe you became bulimic or uh, whatever, but it might not be that severe. Uh, it might just be, I've got this really, like nothing's ever good enough voice in my head and it won't go away. And now that I'm 30 years old or 50 years old or whatever it is, I hate this part of myself. It rides me incessantly and I can't get rid of it. And I, like, if I could do a partectomy and get it out of here, oh, I yeah. would, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and that's where that war thing comes in, right? So when you asked about a tool, the first thing to remember is if you developed an inner perfectionist in this example, it came to help you get love. It didn't come to just kick your ass for the rest of your life. That's a strategy maybe, but the intent is positive. So the first thing I share with my clients is like all parts have a positive intent. And if we can just start there, I might not know what it is, right? But if I can make that assumption, all parts have a positive intent. That's a really, really strong starting place because now I can move from judgment to curiosity. I wonder what it is, right? Absolutely. And let's not uh, make small the courage it takes to put down the fight oh yeah that you've been fighting yourself blaming yourself for not being able to fix yourself and be ready for your best life for years in most cases and to actually uh, put that down and say maybe now it's time to form a new relationship and I'm going to start by being curious and say maybe this little part of me I don't have to get rid of maybe it has something to share with me yeah. that alone takes maybe the greatest courage mm. to put down the war right um, and so what a beautiful place to start and you know I just wanted to add like what we're touching here is is what almost um, ended my life you know, that I was so um, unproud of myself for not being able to truly uh, break down and clear, fix, and complete a war so I was ready, whole, complete for my life. And I was so ashamed of the years I'd spent trying to solve the, the riddle, the puzzle of my uh, all the problems internally, emotionally, mentally that the only thing left I had was this idea, this almost desire to cut it out of my bo- of my brain particularly. Like that was yeah. the only way. I remember feeling that way. Um, and yet... Yeah, because it's tormenting you. It was so tormenting that the idea that I just couldn't come out of the maze, the maze had surrounded me. And yet at this particular time in my life, I found somehow 
and I, I had my own moment, like someone calling me about a spiritual event. You know, mine was this shooting star and after and returning to my original mentor. But what it gave me was a flag, mm-hmm. right? And an opportunity to plan a new motivation, which was I'm going to put down what I've been doing and I'm going to invite all that I'm most afraid of and see what it has to show me. Yeah. Right in that moment, just like you're describing. Um, yeah. So that's a beautiful place to come from. And, and you know, it's, I love hearing your journey, which is just so immaculate. The journey back to what I like to say with you, Jeffrey, is, is you know, returning to the king, you know, that sovereign that you are. And that we've had that chance to do that together over the last handful of years. That, you know, now with your company, your work, the courageous messenger, you know, talk about a story that that kind of sent you on this gauntlet to, to become <laughs> that courageous messenger, to receive courageously the messages in every way and how it cycles. Yeah. What's it like to, you know, coming through that vacuum that was created in the wake of the wounding that you received around belonging, around uh, outcast, And then on the other side, almost like on a universal level, that black hole drawing inward and that new universe popping out the other side, you know, the gift of this yeah. work in the world. Yeah. your work and how you've called a tribe around you and how you actually help others do so. How does that feel today to be that gift of the wound? This is going to be a funny answer, but the first thing that comes to mind is a hell of a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. Like life's not so hard anymore. Um, you know, it is not nearly as dramatic. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that's the first thing. Um, I, I feel like a lot of my work, I just talked with a former client um, a little earlier today, and he was like, you know, so a lot of my clients come to me when something gets placed in their lap for them to do in the world, and they go, oh, crap, that's the work, right? So, um and it requires you to step out with something different, something unique, something that maybe the world hasn't seen before, uh, something that you certainly aren't sure they want. There's no proven track record, right? The work you do, nobody, we, we, you didn't know, right? I know part of your story, driving around Beverly Hills, getting the download of like of the of the songwriter's journey, right? Uh, you don't know. And it disrupts the hell out of your the life that you know. Yeah. Nope, not doing that that way anymore, right? Um, and 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 this client said to me earlier today, he's like, you know, part of what you did, Jeffrey, especially with the shadow work, the depth work, was help me make peace with the parts I was afraid to have seen, touched, recognized, perhaps squashed. Uh, so that I could step out powerfully with my voice and with my work. Um, So the perspective I take today is that our life's journey is the preparation for our life's work. Yes. Right. Uh, I call it your life PhD. There's something, you know, intimately that you've traversed over and over and over again. And I always, you know, my perspective now is instead of trying to get rid of it so that you can present yourself all pretty and clean, uh, it's the very thing that you might have had shame or judgment or whatever around uh, that prepared you to know and serve the people you're on earth to serve. You know that journey intimately. Why would you get rid of it, try to scrub it out and then do something else? And I'm not saying doing the same thing, right? So like, I don't primarily work with gay teens, for example, right? Uh, But I'm talking about at a pattern level, you know these patterns. I know the pattern of belonging. Yeah. And the pattern of coming out, yes. right? Laying claim to something in so many levels, not just sex, not just sexually, yeah. right? And all of my audience have a message to come out about. Yes. They're getting downloads about what they're here to do in the world. And, you know, some of them are like Fortune 500 executives who are getting tapped by source saying, you're meant to be a change agent. You're meant to be changing the paradigm and changing the conversation in this industry. Um, and it, you know, legitimately, and I get it freaks them out. The whole thing 
okay, I don't, I don't say this one much. Um, here's what I've learned. The parts you are most in judgment of, most ashamed about, uh, most scared to touch. When you go on your hero's journey and cross the threshold where you lay claim to your gift, become the very parts of you that you must lead with in your service. Yes. That's what's so terrifying about it. It is terrifying and so worth it. So for me, when I was a kid, my, uh, my mom called me JJ or uh, Jeffrey John uh, or Joy Boy. Uh, there is this joyful, curious, mischievous spirit in me uh, and kind of a holy man minister archetype that moves through me. And I work in the world of marketing and messaging and business. And it is the minister coupled with this joy and mischief that I have to lead with. Mm -hmm. You know, just yesterday I presented in front of a bunch of, you know, high level marketing pros and the leader of the group said, Jeffrey, they need more depth. Can you come and teach them how to not just sell another shiny object, but teach them how to move people uh, with their words, with their message and know who they're here to move, mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, now my greatest uh, people will tell you when they, when I'm in uh, doing this kind of work with folks, especially when it's their deepest, darkest, nastiest thing. I'm like a kid in a candy store, yeah. right? I'm like, oh, here we go. Because I know the good stuff's coming, yeah. right? And I have enough experience with it now to trust it, even though they don't know that and they've been in judgment. Like, but I, oh, I know like, oh, this is where the good stuff is. Yeah. So when you're asked like, how does it feel today? Um, at best, it feels like a party, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Ah, oh, well, you know, I would say, well, there's many ways you work. What's the best way for people to check out more of Courageous Messenger, by the way? Uh, go and to the CourageousMessenger.com is an easy way. Okay. Uh, or go to Facebook and join the Courageous Messenger Facebook group, which you get to by just typing in the Courageous Messenger. Um, I do a live broadcast every Tuesday morning, uh, kind of a transmission of a teaching. Every Tuesday morning, they're just about 15 minutes. Um, so that's an easy way to plug in and kind of, uh, be part of the tribe and, uh, all that good stuff. Uh, if you are more interested in, uh, helping get your message clarified, understand who you're here to work with and how to step out as a thought leader to, to change the conversation in this world, uh, then I would go to the courageousmessenger.com. There's all sorts of resources there. Amazing, Jeffrey. And, you know, I just wanted to say that you help guide you helped isaac and i you know really guide into you know our work in the world to the depth it is today i'm so grateful for you um we the really great joys uh, and we got to like really explore the wounding we both experienced and from that place of embrace um water the gift of it um to truly be able to recognize human beings in the world that we need to work with you know yeah. to really call our people forward yeah. and um recognize who they are as we share you know our offers that, and our gifts in the world that's one of my favorite things in the world doing this work is seeing people take ownership of their own wounding for one their own mm -hmm. journey and as they take ownership of their own journey to take ownership of their tribe to take ownership of these are my people and i know it in my bones mm. And that's one of the things that I've loved watching the two of you do is really take ownership of not just the work you do, but who you're meant to serve. And, and my personal internal language is who you're here to minister to with the yeah, work you do. Absolutely. And if for those of you just starting, you know, that that are still in that a very, you know, very states of war that there's been all these parts of you to fix, you know, just leaving you with that maybe those parts no longer need to be cut out fixed 
um, there, there's a um, there's a book I'll recommend quickly. Please. So um, I, I, I mentioned that Romeo Juliet dialoguing, right? Labeling each voice and dialoguing with different parts of your psyche. That's actually a takeoff on a tool that Carl Jung developed to dialogue with aspects of his subconscious. Um, there's another book from the founders of Voice Dialogue, Hal and Sidra Stone, called Embracing Ourselves. Beautiful. Um, and it's a great it's a great little book to get into, oh, how can I start to embrace all the different parts of myself? So if somebody is just starting out, uh, go there. Fantastic. And, you know, we can't wait to see you move out of, you know, that war and trying to present, you know, a, a version of yourself to the world instead, you know, reorienting yourself back to dig in the dirt and see what what incredible tree grows from the gift of those wounds that you've been through and that message that's waiting for you to share with others because there are so many people out there that need you on the other side of that and so we i wish that for each of you to embrace those parts of you jeffrey uh no words uh you're amazing see you uh out there in the world my brother thank you so much my pleasure i love you thank you for having me and uh thanks for having this conversation in the world mm. This is Embracing Crazy. See you next time. Mm-hmm.